Uh, Today we're starting a new study on the Beatitudes uh, taught by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Now the eight statements uh, that were in the opening video are eight statements or verses that introduce the most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught us the great commandment uh, to love God and love people. We've talked about that a little bit over the past few weeks. And he taught us the great commission as a church, the mission that we have to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus to everyone everywhere. The Beatitudes teach us how to live the life that we were created to live by describing what true happiness really is. Now, I don't have a favorite Greek word, but if I did, the word that Jesus uses at the very beginning of each beatitude, at the beginning of each verse, uh, this word would be at the top of my list. So Jesus begins uh, each verse with the word blessed or blessed. Now, the original Greek word for blessed is the word makarios. Now, I'm not great at Greek. But that's the word. So I'm going to throw this word up on the screen this morning. And what I'd like for us to do, we're going to practice our Greek together this morning. This is a fun word to say. All right, church, we're going to wake up a little bit. We're going to get excited. On the count of three, I want us to repeat this word, makarios, together. You ready? One, two, three. Makarios. That was pretty good. Let's try it one more time. One, two, three. Makarios. All right. This word, it means blessed. It means happy, and really the best definition or translation for this word is an inner joy that is untouchable by the world. An inner joy that is untouchable by the world. So in his opening remarks to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us his formula for real happiness, makarios, an inner joy untouchable by the world. Now, I found an article in Psychology Today And they asked 52,000 Americans this question, uh, what would it take to make you happy? That's a good question, right? What would it take to make you happy? And here's a list of the most popular answers that were given to this question. The first one could be summarized as sufficient material resources. So people said if they had enough food, if they had enough clothing, if they had the right kind of shelter, if their health was in good order, uh, or if they had enough money, that could make them happy. The other thing was sufficient social resources. So this is things like having a good group of friends. Uh, your, your social life was happening. It was hopping. Uh, being in love was on there. Receiving recognition for the work and the effort that you put out in life. Having success in whatever you do. And then also being attractive. Those were things that people listed as being uh, sufficient social resources. The last thing that took, uh, was at the top of the list was a stable environment. People want a good financial situation. Owning a house, uh, being a parent, being married, uh, the city that you live in was was listed on there. The job that you have, and and a lot of people listed their religion. You know, most of these answers, when I was reading this, this this week, they show us that the popular answer for our culture that that we live in, for what it means to find true happiness, is found in external situations, external circumstances. The world's idea of finding true happiness is this, that with the right circumstances, I can be happy. With the right circumstances, I can be happy. This is called when and then thinking. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, When I graduate college and find a good paying job, then I'll be happy. Uh, When I finally meet someone and we get married, then, then I'll be happy. When we get married and, and we start having kids, then I'll be happy. And then some of you are in this boat. When the kids finally leave home, then I'll be happy. 
Happiness through external situations, external circumstances. You know, this is something that people have wrestled with for generations. I would say since the beginning of time. Solomon, in the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he said these words. This is, this is so great. He said, I decided to enjoy myself. He, he decided just to enjoy life and find out what happiness is. Now, if you've never read Ecclesiastes or Ecclesiastes chapter 2, this is really the classic chapter in the Bible on the pursuit of happiness, what it means to pursue happiness in our life. So today, after I preach, if you want to save yourself a lot of time in this life, just go home, read Ecclesiastes 2. It'll be a lot of help. You see, Solomon said, I've tried it all. I've tried everything there is to try, and he found three dead ends. He said, accumulating things, dead end experiencing worldly pleasures. There wasn't anything that the Bible says he didn't experience. And achieving success. These were all dead ends in Solomon's pursuit of happiness. And these are the things that we spend most of our lives trying to obtain. We, we live our lives as though this is it. Every decision that we make, every choice that our family makes, we, we, we almost live as though this was it. You know, Solomon was the wealthiest person around. Scripture tells us that, and extra-biblical historical evidence tells us that. He had all kinds of pleasures. He, he was the most successful man of his time. But none of these things brought true happiness, lasting happiness. Makarios, a kind of joy that's untouchable by the world. You know, we tend to think that by accumulating things, we'll somehow find happiness. I hear people say this all the time. If I could just win the lottery, Right? I'd be happy. If I could just win the lottery, life would be so much easier. I'm not going to lie to you. That'd be nice, right? But Solomon said, I was the king of an empire. I had it all. And none of these things brought happiness in his life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17 says, All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I don't know if you've ever tried to chase the wind before. It doesn't work out. See, the popular idea for experiencing true happiness is having the right circumstances. But Jesus teaches that true happiness is found elsewhere. He teaches that the the way to happiness is all about the internal, what's happening in us and through us. And that's what the Beatitudes are all about. And as we'll see over the next eight weeks, this happiness, this joy starts with having the right attitudes in life. And that's why we've entitled this series the, the B-Attitudes. You see, your attitude matters in life. Your attitudes matter. And Jesus knew this. He knew that people wanted happiness. He knew that people wanted joy. And that's why taking a closer look at our attitudes individually is the first topic that he teaches on publicly. Jesus begins each word with the, or each verse with the word blessed. Remember, blessed simply means happy. It means joy, a joy that's untouchable by the world. So you could actually reread the Beatitudes this way, and it would, it would be a little bit more accurate. Happy are you if you're poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. You know, when you read the Beatitudes this way, it sounds like backwards teaching, right? It sounds like a bunch of upside-down statements. Happy if you're sad. Happy if you're poor. Happy if you're put down and persecuted because of righteousness, because of your faith. You know, when I, when I read this, it doesn't sound like true happiness to me. <laughs> but Jesus is showing that we can learn to be happy despite our circumstances. We can have this, this joy that is untouchable by the world despite our circumstances. We can learn to be happy despite our circumstances. Now, Jesus isn't advocating a lifeless, depressed, poor-spirited life. He's teaching us an extremely important truth. He's saying that if you have to have all of your problems solved before you can be happy, guess what? You're never going to be happy. If you have to have all of your problems, all of your circumstances in order before you can be happy, you're never going to be happy. Jesus is saying, I want to teach you that true happiness depends not on the right circumstances, but on the right attitudes. Our happiness was never meant to be determined by what's happening uh, around us, by the circumstances in our family, in our culture, in our places of work. Our happiness should be determined by what's happening in us. Happiness doesn't depend on external circumstances. It should depend on what God is doing in us and through us. And and then the attitudes that we have as a result of that work. You know, every single person, every person here today wants to be happy. Every person here wants to experience that kind of joy that is untouchable by the world. The kind of joy that you have no matter what's going on in your life. Everybody wants that. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us uh, hanging or, or guessing about how we can experience this kind of happiness. He gives us the Beatitudes. These are the attitudes or the characteristics that God wants for every follower of Christ. You know, life is tough. And we, we just finished a series talking about how uh, we go through the storms of life. You're either just coming out of one, you're, you're currently in one, or there's, there's a storm on its way. There's a lot of things in life that don't go our way. There's a lot of things that we would ha- have done differently. But today I want to encourage you with the truth that you can be happy. You can have this inner kind of joy that is untouchable by the world. You know, our world tells us that happiness is circumstantial and joy you know, we would say joy is found in Christ. Joy is something that the world can't take away. But according to Scripture, uh, this word makarios, this happiness, this joy, has nothing to do with what goes on outside of what God's doing in us. It has everything to do with who God is and, and what He's done in our lives. So today I want to encourage you with the truth that you can be happy. You can have this inner joy despite your worldly circumstances. So this morning, let's take a look at the very first attitude, the first beatitude that Jesus talks about. If you have your Bibles, um, we'll also have this on the screen. It's going to be Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. These are what we, the words that we read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, to paraphrase Jesus' words, he's saying, happy are the humble. Remember that word blessed, makarios, that happiness, that joy. He's saying, happy are the humble. So that's the first point that we're going to talk about today. Happiness is found in humility. 
Happiness is found in humility. The first step to happiness is to be humble. Now, he's not talking about having a low self-esteem or or putting yourself down all the time. Remember, church, we know this, that Jesus didn't die for junk. Despite what others have said about you, despite how maybe you have felt about yourself in the past or presently, um, you're not junk. Jesus did not die for junk. He died for people. And as image bearers of God, we have value. Every person here has worth. You have significance. Now, this doesn't mean that you're perfect. No one is. Every person here is a sinner. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. But at the same time, when we're talking about having this happiness and humility, God's plan for our lives is not that we would run around putting ourselves down all the time. That's not humility. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be humble? You know, in our culture, we have a lot of definitions for this word, but it's important that we go back to God's word and we see what humility is according to scripture. And as we do that, we find that humility, being humble, simply means that we, we depend on God and we care about people. We depend on God and we care about people. As we, as we learn to depend on God in our own lives, uh, lives humility recognizes a few things. Uh, First, that I don't have it all together, despite how I look on Sunday morning, despite how I show up with a smile on my face, I have baggage in my life. Humility recognizes that I don't have it all together. Humility also understands that I haven't arrived yet. You know, none of us have. Humility knows that I haven't learned all that God wants me to learn. That's what being a disciple is. You know, we're always learning. We're learning from Jesus to live like Jesus. Humility recognizes that I'm spiritually bankrupt and I'm in need of a Savior. Humility recognizes that I need God every minute of every day. I can't do anything without him. Humility also has to do with caring for others. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 says, says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit. I underlined selfish ambition and vain conceit because we'll come back to that. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. So valuing others, caring for others is a result of biblical humility. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We think about the interests of others and not just ourselves. You know, humility can be a tricky thing. I read this week, it's been said that as soon as you consider yourself a humble person, you can be sure that you're not. But a biblical view of humility and the kind of humility that Jesus is talking about is having a a deep-rooted dependency on Jesus in our lives every day and caring for other people. So if biblical humility is all about depending on God and caring about others, then the opposite of humility is self-reliance, you know, relying on our own strength relying on our own resources, and also selfishness. That's what we see in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So that's kind of the opposite of humility. And then he gives us humility, valuing others. Jesus is saying that if you only depend on yourself and if you don't care about others, you're never going to be happy. The opposite of happiness is found in selfishness. Happiness is found in humility. See, humility and happiness are two things that go together, and we find that a lot in Scripture. We find words that that are meant to be paired, and they really have no weight on their own. You can't have humility without happiness, and you can't have happiness without humility, that that joy, that makarios that he's talking about. 
If we want to learn to have lasting joy, lasting happiness, we need to learn to be humble. So that brings us really to the big question of, of the day. If happiness is found in humility, how can humility increase happiness? How do, we, how do we pursue this? How do we have humility in our lives? How do we become a, a humble person? You could say it this way. How can a dependency on God and caring for others increase happiness in my life? So the second point is this that we're going to talk about, that humility reduces stress. Humility reduces stress. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You know, when I'm humble before the Lord, again, I I realize that I don't have to have all the answers. That's a tall order for any person. You know, I realize that the world doesn't depend on me as much as we might think it does in our our homes, in our place of work. In in a sense, I can resign as captain of the universe, (laughs) When I'm humble, I realize that I don't have to solve all the world's problems by myself. When I'm humble, I don't have to fake it. I don't have to pretend that I'm perfect because here's the truth, uh, church. God doesn't require perfection to experience makarios. He doesn't require perfection to have that, that joy that's untouchable by the world. I don't have to play God and assume responsibility for things that I was never meant to, to be responsible for. In a sense, and we're going to talk about this a little bit next week, when I'm humble, I learn to take myself less seriously and take God more seriously. When I'm humble, I can live with the tension between what's called the ideal and the real. The ideal. What's the ideal? Well, this is the way that I wish my life was. The way I wish my my job was, the way I wish my family was, having the perfect family, the the perfect kids, the perfect house. A lot of us, we we live in a fantasy land of the ideal. And I believe we don't have to live with with that tension. The reality is the way things are right now. You know, church, there's always going to be a tension in life between the ideal and the real. And humility accepts the fact that we can be happy, we can have that, that joy that God's talking about, because we choose to depend on God even though life circumstances are not ideal. Humility recognizes that. This humble dependence on God reduces the stress that comes from trying to live the perfect ideal life. That's the mindset that, that many of us get in. I've been there. Faith and I have had so many conversations about things that we want and things that we want to do. And those things are not bad, but when they start to take over your life and all of a sudden you're not really living for today, that's when it's bad. You know, stress comes from all sorts of places. Uh, This is something that we could talk about the rest of of today, but stress comes from the, the deadlines we've had at work. Stress comes from wanting something more than we currently have. Stress comes from broken relationships. You know, we value relationships just about above anything else. And, and when relationships are severed, when, when they hurt, whether it's with our kids, with our family, stress comes with that. Stress comes from private sin. You know, the things that we know about that others don't. You know, the list, the list goes on and on. But when, when I become a humble person, when I'm what Jesus calls poor in spirit, when I live dependent on the Lord... It naturally reduces the stress in my life. And here's an amazing truth that as the stress goes down, the happiness or the joy goes up. That's a a byproduct of that. As we depend on God in our lives, the stress goes down and the joy goes up. 
You know, if you're feeling the weight of stress in your life today, if you came in here and you're, you're stressed about work, you're stressed about relationships, you're stressed about life, what's the first thing that you should do? That's a big question. I, I thought about this a lot this week, and, and I think the first thing that you should do is actually ask yourself this question. Am I living my life dependent on the Lord, or am I relying on myself? If, you, if you're stressed out today, if you're stressed to the max, if you just can't, you just can't keep going, What's the first thing that you should do? I believe that you should ask yourself the question, am I living this life dependent on myself or am I depending on the Lord? Are you regularly spending time with God and his word? Are you opening his word, getting alone with him and and laying your troubles at his feet instead of trying to fix all of your problems on your own? You know, I'm afraid that for the American church, Um, We view Sunday mornings as the time that we just come and we get fed, and that's the only time we spend with God throughout the weekend. And it's no wonder that we're so stressed out all the time. It's no wonder that we have a lack of joy in our lives. You know, this was not meant to be the the main uh, part of our week where we come and hear from the Lord. This is the celebration. This is the time where we come, and yeah, our our tanks get full a little bit, and, and I hope that there's conviction that happens through preaching, and I hope that you're encouraged, but that relationship that you have with Jesus, that grows through spending that one-on-one time with him. I talk to people all the time who are dealing with, 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 with private sin and you know, relationship issues and, and their attitude towards the church. And I'll tell you this, 99.9% of the time, when I get to this question, it always comes back that they're, they're not spending time with God by themselves. You know, we, we weren't created to come and sit in, in chairs or a pew on Sunday morning. God wants us to learn how to disciple ourselves how to grow by reading God's word through, through prayer and relying on the Holy Spirit to teach us and, and grow us. And I would say if you're here this morning and you have a lot of stress in your lives, that's a good question to ask. You see, when our eyes are focused on the Lord, the stress in our lives goes down because we humbly recognize our dependence on him. Humility reduces stress. The third thing that we're going to talk about today, if you're taking notes, is that humility improves our relationships. Humility improves our relationships. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, we read these words. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So here's, here's a question. I, I want some, some audience participation today. So all across the room, you can raise your hand. How many of you love being around selfish people? Just raise them high. If you love being around selfish people, just raise them high. Connor has a half hand up over there, and then I saw a couple in the back. Selfish, self-centered people are an irritation. They're a pain to be around. Nobody likes to be around them because they're unhappy. They they make everybody else around them unhappy. They spread their gloom and and doom simply because they're selfish and self-centered, just like Philippians talks about. Now, on a side note, and this is just for you to maybe think about individually this morning, if you're unhappy all the time, if you're finding that you don't have a lot of joy in your life, I want to challenge you to look at the people you surround yourself with. It's likely that the people you surround yourself with are unhappy all the time as well. You know, look at the company that you keep. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. If your life lacks joy, look at the company that you keep. On another note, again, audience participation, how many of you like to be around humble people? Right? Raise them high. If you like to be around humble people, 
right? That's a no-brainer, right? Humble people are nice to be around because they're not always trying to impress you. I've had friends like that, that all they want to do is impress you the whole time that you're with them. Humble people, they're not only thinking about themselves. You know, when it's time to go out and eat, it's not always their way, all right? When it's time to, you know, plan vacations or when it's time to, you know, pick an activity that you want to do, um, it's not always their way. I've got some kids, my, my boys at home, that need to work on humility in a major way. Because remember, when you're humble, you care about other people. We like to be around humble people because those are the kinds of people that care about you. And in return, when we're humble, when we practice biblical humility, we care about other people. We all love to be around people like this. It's the kind of company that we want to keep. You know, if bad company corrupts good character, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, if bad company corrupts good character, I would say then good company helps build character. The people that you surround yourself with matter. How you grow spiritually, how you grow in your business, how you grow as a family. Look at the people that you surround yourself with. Over the years, I have intentionally tried to surround myself uh, with specifically men uh, who are more of that Paul figure in my life, that are spiritual leaders in my life. I look at their families and see how they've raised their kids. I look at how they're leading in the church. I, I, I look at how they treat their spouses. And I don't get this right every time, but I intentionally try to spend time with people who are going to invest and pour into my life in a healthy way. People that, that I, I, I look at their life and I can learn something from. If you're surrounding yourself with people who are just the, the gloom and doom and they're, just, they're, they're never happy, they complain about everything. I know people that they'll, they, can, they can complain about no, no matter what it is. You know, their, their political candidate can get selected and then they complain, you know. Uh, things, you can sing the right songs at church and then they complain. Uh, family gatherings can be going well and, and they find some way to complain. I don't want to surround myself with people like that. You know, they bring you down. I don't know who came up with this, but it was, it was either an individual or a team of people. They came up with this short course uh, for, for people who, uh, helping people understand how to navigate human relations at work. So it's this short list that they print this out and they give it to people. Maybe it was your first day on the job. And this is what it says. I think this relates to every one of our lives. The least important word that you can use is I. The most important word that you can use is we. The two most important words, uh, thank you. The three most important words, all is forgiven. The four most important words, What's your opinion? The five most important words, uh, you did a good job. The six most important words, I, I want to understand you better. Now, we're going to 100, so buckle. No, I'm just kidding. We're not, we'll stop at six. We'll stop at six. And I'm looking at this list, and all of these, except for the very first one, they require humility. And I would say they require biblical humility. When I'm poor in spirit, which means I, I depend on God and I care about other people, it reduces my stress and it also reduces or it improves the relationships in my life. Because when I'm humble enough to for, ask for forgiveness and, and forgive others, it helps relationships. I'm humble enough to say thank you, humble enough to, enough to ask others' opinions, humble enough to tell another person that they did a good job. These are, these are important characteristics, important traits that God wants us to have. 
I was reading this week an article, and I should have gone back to look who, who originally wrote this, so I apologize for that. But um, they, they wrote that St. Francis of Assisi, he was a Catholic monk, a friar, and a, and a preacher, he actually had a method for maintaining humility in his own life. I thought this was great. I got a kick out of this. So in his memoirs, he said, anytime someone praised me, so anytime someone thanked him or praised him for something he did, in order to stay humble, I had a fellow monk sit down and tell me all of my faults. Isn't that good? (laughs) And then I started to think this week, you know, St. Francis, he had to ask a fellow monk because he never got married. You know, most of us, (laughs) hang on, the joke's not done yet. It's not done. You know, most of us, we we don't need to go out and get a monk. We have our own heavenly sandpaper at home with us. (laughs) I love you. You know, we laugh, but, but ladies, I want to say this to you, and this is, again, another side note. Uh, wives, it's not your job to keep your husband humble. It's, it's not. Husbands, it's not your job to keep your wife humble. That's the Lord's job. It's important that we understand that, and we understand the role that God's given us, because when we begin to take on roles like that in our own life that were never meant to be ours, we, we start to have that stress. We start to have that, that feeling of just... Uh, God, I can't do this. And and it's right, you can't because it's something you were never meant to do. Church, as we grow in humility, we grow in our dependence on God and in our care for other people, we grow in happiness. Humility reduces stress and, and it improves relationships. When we walk humbly before the Lord, living our lives dependent on God, worldly circumstances don't hurt as much. The disappointment that we faced at work what that person said to you or, or about you, what your kids are going through. When we walk humbly before the Lord, the worldly circumstances, they don't sting as much. And that's because we're depending on God. We're able to stay focused on the Lord, which helps us stay focused on caring for others. Humility improves relationships. Finally, this is the, the last point, what I want to end with today. Humility releases God's power in our lives. Humility releases God's power in our lives. So we, we read J, uh, James chapter 4, verse 6, and, and that's a verse, or we read 1 Peter 5, 5. That's a verse that actually echoes James 4, 6. And it might be the other way around. I don't know. They echo each other. But listen to this. Uh, James 4, 6 says, but he gives us more grace. Remember that word grace. Something really neat I learned this week. He gives us more grace, and that is why the scriptures say God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So I was talking with a pastor friend this week, and he he describes uh, this verse in this way. I think this is so neat. Um, Grace in this passage could be translated as strength. It's actually a more accurate translation. It's used in the sense of the merciful kindness by which God exerting his holy influence upon souls turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and fires them up to live as Christians. Now, I don't usually talk this way, but it makes a whole lot of sense when you reread James 4, 6 and substitute the word grace for the word strength. God gives strength to the humble but he sets himself against the proud. Now, church, I don't know about you, but I want God's strength in my life. There have been seasons where I'm just tired of doing life on my own. Uh, My own ideas and my own power, my own strength. I want God's strength in my life. And scripture teaches us that the secret to having God's strength in our lives is to walk humbly before the Lord and to depend on him in our daily lives. 
I don't care what it is that you do in this life. You, you can only get so far by depending on your own strength. Let, let's talk vocationally for a minute. You could be a school teacher. You, you could sell cars for a living. You can be a construction worker, a firefighter. Maybe, maybe you were a doctor or are a doctor. Maybe you're a small business owner. Or maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're a stay-at-home mom. Or maybe you're a pastor. At some point, your own strength will run out and, and you'll become so overwhelmed with the responsibility that's before you that it starts a chain reaction in your life. You start to feel inadequate. God, find someone else. You, you get tired, not because you haven't slept, but just because you're tired of doing it on your own and your own strength. You start to lose the passion that you once had when you don't depend on the Lord. And going back to this, you'll start to believe the lie that there's someone else out there who could possibly do it better. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a mom and you got a whole bunch of rascals at home. You, you start to think you're just not fit or cut out for that. Maybe you own your own business and it's just one challenge after another every week. Maybe you're a teacher and just the idea, you see the way the world is going and the idea that you only have a certain amount of time to invest and pour into these kids you start to think, I wonder if there's just someone else that could do it better. You know, I believe despite how you feel about your current circumstances in life, whether it's family, work, I believe that God has you right where, you want, right where he wants you this season. It might just be that you need to start relying on God's strength and not your own. It might be that you just need to surrender. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, each time... He said, and here's that word, my grace is all you need. Uh, my, my strength is all you need. And it makes sense when you look at the second verse. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. The, the apostle Paul, he understood that he couldn't do this life on his own. He needed to rely on God's strength, on God's power to get through every single day. Whatever your purpose is in life, you, you were never meant to face it alone. Every single person here, we, we all need God's grace. We need his strength, his power every single day. I love the promise that's in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. The promise that his power works best in my weakness. We've talked about this a little bit before. It doesn't work just halfway or, or it's not a, a mediocre kind of power. His power works absolutely best in my weakness. You know, church, I, I'll be honest with you this morning. Every single week, every week, I feel inadequate to be in the role that I'm in. Every single week. But as I start my week, I'm reminded through God's word and from other people in the church, through my family, that I serve a God who has a plan and a purpose for my life. And it's when I'm at my absolute weakest that his strength works best. It's when I begin to let go of being in control and start depending on God that he carries me through whatever challenge is ahead of me. This is something we're going to talk about a little bit more in the coming weeks. It's admitting my dependency on the Lord. The, and I believe from here that the secret to real strength is admitting my own weakness and choosing to depend on God. Humility releases God's power in our lives. Jesus begins his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes and specifically where true happiness is found. 
He talks about how we can have this inner joy that's untouchable by the world, this makarios. The world tells us that happiness is found in the pursuit of the external, material things, our, our job, having the ideal, whatever it is. And Jesus tells us that happiness is found elsewhere. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we'll end with this verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Church, happy are the humble. Happy are the humble. Happiness is found in humility. Happiness reduces stress. Humility improves our relationships. Humility releases God's power in our lives. I stand here today with confidence that there is happiness and joy, this makarios that's, that's untouchable by the world, that it's available to every person. And this happiness is found when we depend on God and we care about other people. This happiness is found when we're humble. Let's be a church that depends on the Lord. Let's be a church that cares about others.